You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. John chapter 3 is where we'll be today. We talked last week about the cleansing of the temple. Uh, We've been talking all along in our study in the Gospel of John about how we want our study to lead us or result in us trusting Jesus more, reducing that amount of time that it takes for us to turn to trust him when we go through something difficult. So learning to trust him more and then learning to share him more with others around us. Last week we saw the temple cleansing. We said that a strong knowledge of scripture will help us know when to be angry, guide our responses to criticism, and give us a strong foundation for ongoing belief. And so we looked at the the story there. We talked about how um, the, the disciples that were following Jesus, they should have been angry about what was going on in the temple as much as Jesus was because it was something they would have known from the Old Testament that they should have felt. And so we talked about being angry at the things that make God angry. And in order to be that, we have to be informed. We have to be informed about what would make God angry, angry so that we can be angry at the things that make God angry. Then we need to be sensitive when those type of things are happening around us, not to be tolerant of those things, but to be responsive um, and to, to do it in a slow manner, to not be quick to anger, but to, to really evaluate a situation, to really work through our own uh, sinful tendencies to make sure that we're uh, responding appropriately. And so uh, we talked about what righteous anger looks like. We said, secondly, that we need to be reflective when we're rebuked by others, um, that the the people in the temple, rather than evaluating whether Jesus was right when he rebuked them about their behavior, they were far more concerned with whether or not he had the authority to address them. So instead of stepping back and saying, okay, here's a guy that we're not very familiar with, but he is bringing these things to our attention, is there any truth to it? Is there anything that I need to do with this criticism? Instead, they're very quick to go into defense mode and say, um, you don't have the authority to tell us these things. So they were far more concerned with um, the authority of Jesus versus his accuracy. And so we said last week that criticism and rebuke should always give us cause to pause and reflect on the validity of the concerns raised regardless of the source. And then lastly, we said that we need to be a follower rather than an admirer. Uh, we see here at the end where Jesus continues to work signs and we have people that are responding in belief only towards those signs. And we talked about the shallowness of that belief because Jesus doesn't believe in them. We said the word is identical even though it's translated differently into English. But the, 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 the real translation ought to say that they believed in Jesus but Jesus did not believe in them. Uh, that he knew their hearts. He knew exactly what was going on in the inside. And so Uh, As an application point last week, we said that now that we have been made into God's temple, do we properly hate sin and uphold his glory in the ways that we conduct our lives? Uh, So he was very upset with how the, the, the holiness conduct was taking place within the temple. Do we have the same passion uh, and zeal for holiness in our own life as, as our bodies now are God's temple? Are are we valuing that uh, ourselves? Okay, that brings us to John chapter 3, and I want to read for us, starting in verse 1, it says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? 
Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Our summary sentence for today. To enter God's kingdom, we must recognize our deep spiritual need for rebirth, which can only be accomplished by the supernatural sovereign work of the Holy Spirit within our hearts. To enter God's kingdom, we must recognize our deep spiritual need for rebirth, which can only be accomplished by the supernatural sovereign work of the Holy Spirit within our hearts. For our kids, being born again means the Holy Spirit gives us the desire and ability to believe in Jesus. All right, so what we're going to see today in this aspect of what it means to be born again is that everybody needs this, okay? Salvation requires this process. You don't get in without it. So it's, it's a universal statement that everybody has to be born again. And then we're going to see the supernatural flavor of what it means to be born again, that it's all of God and, and not of man, that it's a supernatural work within a sinful being's heart to radically change them with the gospel. Okay, So to enter God's kingdom, we start by recognizing our deep spiritual need for rebirth, which can only be accomplished by the supernatural sovereign work of the Holy Spirit within our hearts. Essentially, it's the Holy Spirit giving us the desire and the ability to believe in Jesus. All right, let's jump right into the text this morning. And and I want to be as simple as possible today because this is such a important passage of Scripture because of the implications of it. I mean, we're talking about eternal things. We're talking about making sure that Uh, salvation is rightly applied to individuals. And so I think it necessitates us being as clear as possible and not getting bogged down too much in uh, details that might muddy the waters. And so I want to be as clear as possible today as we look at this passage. Um, It starts with, number one, us understanding the need for rebirth. Understanding the need for rebirth. For our kids, everybody needs to be born again. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. We read this description of Nicodemus, and a few things ought to jump out to us uh, in this description. Um, One, that he's a man. Two, that he's a Pharisee. Three, that he's a ruler of the Jews. Um one who is is knowledgeable and has insight. You fast forward a little bit to a passage that we'll get to uh, next week. It says in verse 10, Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? And so he is uh, identified as one who who has a lot of spiritual credentials. Um, So that's the first thing that I would want us to see here is that spiritual credentials do not guarantee entrance into God's kingdom. Spiritual credentials do not guarantee entrance into God's kingdom. So everybody needs to be uh, reborn. Everybody needs to be born again. And Nicodemus is a great example because I think Jesus chooses somebody that everybody would have assumed would not need anything else in order to get into God's kingdom. Uh, This would have been their, their spiritual leader, this would have been uh, an individual who would have been of upstanding moral character. 
Some things that I jotted down in my notes, Nicodemus is a religious man who is very serious about his religion, right? This isn't a guy who claims to be a follower of Yahweh, who claims to care about the Old Testament and then shows no regard for it, right? So he's not the type of believer that we would be frustrated with today, somebody who claims to be a Christian and yet really shows no evidence of of wanting to do anything that Christ has told them to do. This is a guy who would have looked very much like what he was saying, right? So when we think, even when we think the term Pharisee, we think hypocrite, somebody who says one thing and does the opposite. This would not have been evident to us if we had known Nicodemus. This would have been a guy who would have looked very much like what he says is exactly what he does. Um, He was a Pharisee, which again, at that time was not a negative thing. I mean, you can't even hear the word Pharisee. It's basically synonymous with hypocrite in the, the church culture. You can't hear the word Pharisee and not have it conjure up negative connotations for you. I mean, I mean, it's almost impossible to think Pharisee and think positively about that position. But at that time, before Jesus kind of reinterprets uh, that, that term, a Pharisee would have been a spiritual leader who was zealous for the law, right? And so it's been estimated that if you go back and read through the Old Testament— you could find upwards of 613 commands that God gave to his people, right? So, so far more than the 10 commandments that we think about, right? A lot of specific things that they were called to do. And what the Pharisees did, because they wanted to be so diligent to obey the things that God had told them to do, they created additional laws to even protect them further from being disobedient, right? So they put in what they would call like safety net or, or extra parameters to make sure that we're really guarded and protected and we don't slip up and break any of these things. These guys were serious about their religion. They were serious about trying to be obedient to what God had told them to do. I don't think they set out to be the types of things that Jesus would describe a lot of them as. I don't think they set out to be whitewashed tombs. I don't think they set out to be these type of guys that Jesus would have to show up and criticize for their religion. They, they, I think they started off with a real zeal to be obedient to what God's word said. They're morally upstanding people. These are guys that you would not have found a lot of scandals or skeletons in their closet. I mean, these guys were very intentional to be obedient to the letter of the law. They were rule followers. So much so that they created extra rules to help make it possible for them to keep all the rules. He's a powerful leader and a ruler. He's probably a member of the Sanhedrin, which was a group of 70 ruling men of Israel who took care of a lot of the day-to-day stuff for Israel, obviously under the authority of Rome, who was um, the empire at that time, right? But the Sanhedrin was kind of the ruling body of Israel, and it's very possible and likely that Nicodemus was a part of this group. He's a teacher of Israel, which makes him extremely knowledgeable. And I put in my notes, I think we falsely think that it would have been obvious that a Pharisee would need to be born again because I don't think they were all blatant hypocrites. I mean, think about it. When we talk about, uh, when we hear lost people talk about the church, oftentimes they describe the church as hypocrites, right? Well, we know that's not true for everybody. Is the church full of hypocrites? Yeah, I believe so. I believe the, I believe the church Across the world, the, the, the individual church is not the universal, invisible church, but the visible church, it's full of people who are not born again. It's full of people who, 
who name the name of Christ or follow in, in a passion of, of trying to be obedient to a religion. So they, they, they join churches. They are members of churches. When they get surveyed about the, the culture of church, they're a part of the surveys. And so there's, there's, there's a lot of people who make up the physical church that are not born again, right? And so there are hypocrites within the church, but not everybody in the church is a hypocrite. And I don't know that it's fair to say that every single Pharisee, and there was probably about uh, 6,000 of them at the time, that every single one of them was necessarily a hypocrite, right? Uh, think about the fact that Nicodemus even coming to talk to Jesus in this way is far different than how a lot of the Pharisees would have interacted with him, right? Um, so I don't know if it's fair for us to automatically assume the worst of Nicodemus as far as, oh, it should have been obvious that this guy needed to be born again. It probably would have been very, uh, in our minds, obvious that he should be already on his way to God's kingdom. He would have been the type of guy that we would have liked, that we would have valued. For those of us that come from an educational background, if he had been a student of yours, he's the one that's getting the Christian Character Award, right? he's, He's the one that would have looked very much like what you want every other student to be. Here's a guy who does what I say. I say. Here's a guy who, who really seems to get it, right? He would have looked very good on the outside. And I think sometimes we falsely think that he would have been an obvious choice for somebody who needed to be born again. But he shows up to talk to Jesus, and Jesus denounces all of his credentials and communicates he isn't good enough as is to be saved, right? Like, that's the implication. He shows up, and we get all these listings of who he is. Jesus knew exactly who he was, and Jesus communicates to him, unless you're born again, you can't enter into God's kingdom. And so Jesus kind of uh, destroys his life's work, right? And in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, Jesus goes even further to tell some of the scribes and Pharisees, unless your perfection exceeds these people, then, then, then you're not getting into God's kingdom. Implying that the best of the best, again, not the obvious choice for somebody who needs to be born again, the, the guy that you would have assumed would not need anything else to do or to be done to them in order to enter into God's kingdom. Jesus says, unless you're better than these people, you're not getting into God's kingdom, right? Perfection being needed in order to do so. Paul would have fit uh, similarly to this description. And Paul even claims some of this in Philippians chapter 3. This is what hopefully Nicodemus would have said later in life after this conversation. Hebrews chapter 3. We'll start reading in verse 4. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. This is is Paul echoing what needed to be Nicodemus' heart after this conversation, that everything that I've obtained, everything that's true about me, all these credentials that I've earned, they don't don't get me in, that, that I still fall short. 
Jesus is essentially calling Nicodemus to empty himself like Paul does here. So spiritual credentials do not guarantee entrance into God's kingdom. And we've talked about this for what that looks like for us, right? That being a part of a Christian family, uh, going to church your whole life, going to a Christian school, going to a Christian college, like these things don't don't mean that we're believers. They don't mean that we've been born again. These are external things. These are fleshly things, right? These are things that are not of a spiritual nature necessarily. And so these things don't, they don't, they don't earn our right into God's kingdom. But neither does shallow belief. Neither does shallow belief, because that's certainly what Nicodemus has at this point. He says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. It's interesting the way John writes because, and it's unfortunate that we do have chapters and verses and they break up sections of scripture. Makes it easier to study, makes it easier to teach, but doesn't always make it easier to understand the flow and context of what's happening here. Because this passage goes right along with what we saw at the end of chapter 2 last week. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself or do not believe in them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So you see man mentioned multiple times there, and then verse 1, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. This man came to Jesus by night. What did it look like for somebody to believe in the signs of Jesus but not be believed in by Jesus himself? Nicodemus. Nicodemus is an example of this group of people who saw the signs, believed in Jesus based on these signs, but it was a shallow belief system that really didn't translate into necessary spiritual change inwardly. Nicodemus shows up and he says some true things about Jesus, right? That, um, that ultimately he is a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs unless they, uh, that you do unless God is with him. Are those true things? Absolutely. Are they true enough, though? No. Because he's far more than a teacher. He's not just come from God. He is God. Right? We've already seen that in John chapter 1. So Nicodemus says some true things. Is, is, is Jesus a teacher from God? Absolutely. Is he doing power from God? Absolutely. But he's far more than that. Right? And so Nicodemus has a shallow belief right now that's really tied to the signs that he has seen Jesus work. He's the type of man who believed but didn't believe fully yet. Now, does anybody notice anything interesting about this passage that I read right here? Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Is anything odd there? he doesn't even ask a question, right? Like Jesus, Jesus gives him an answer, but there's no question that was really asked, right? Like Nicodemus just kind of shows up and, and states something, right? He shows up, greets, greets Jesus and says, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. But he hasn't asked anything. This is a great example of what John has just told us, that Jesus doesn't need information from man. He knows exactly what, what's going on inside of man right? He knows why Nicodemus is here. And I would venture to say that Nicodemus is here because he's even wondering, am I good enough? Am I enough yet? Right? Like, like 
you're, you're, you're pressing in on me a little here. Like before you showed up, I was, I was good. I was content. I felt like I, I had done the things that I needed to do. And he's probably feeling a little, a little conviction setting in of, I, I don't know what to do with this guy. So he kind of shows up and he gives him some, some credit here, gives him some respect and says, I know you're a teacher from God because there's no way you could do these things unless God was with you. Which, which is a great nod to Nicodemus because what do some of the other Pharisees say? Hey, we've seen your signs and you're from Satan, right? Like, like they do the exact opposite. Like, like they want nothing to do with Jesus. Jesus is pressing in on them too. And instead of wanting to know more and instead of wanting to figure out what do I do with this, they want to denounce it completely like, like you're from Satan. Like, like we, don't, we don't even want to talk to you about this. Like, like you have to be from Satan. You're, you're demonic in the things that you're doing. That's where Jesus has the statement, look, if you're going to blaspheme the Holy Spirit, like, like there's no hope for you, right? Because the Holy Spirit is what brings about the new birth, and you're rejecting the Holy Spirit here, is what he would tell these other Pharisees. But Nicodemus comes and says, look, I know you're a teacher from God. I know you do these signs. And Jesus just says, you know what? Let's skip the introductions, right? Let's skip the chit-chat. Let's go right to why we are here, why you came to me. And he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Cannot see it. So you've got Nicodemus enamored with these signs of Jesus, but he hasn't connected the fact that Jesus is more than just a channel of God's power. He's more than a great teacher, more than a great prophet. I would say Nicodemus is a good example of what we see in the the sower parable where the seed has gone forth, but right now it's not falling on the good soil yet. It's, it's falling on some soil and he's showing some signs of life, showing some signs of belief. Hey, I know you're from God. I know, you, I know, I know if you couldn't do these things unless you were with God, but if left in this state, if left in this condition, he won't, he won't stay committed to Jesus. At some point he's going to fall away because he has not had a transformational experience with Jesus yet. He's got some information, he's enamored, he's intrigued, he's showing some initial signs potentially of of belief, but Jesus doesn't believe in him yet because this is not on good soil yet, okay? Jesus says to him, unless you're born again, that person cannot see the kingdom of God. So number three, being born again is the criteria for entrance into God's kingdom. Spiritual credentials, no. Shallow belief, no. Being born again, yes. And that word unless, it's an exclusive word there. It's the exclusive way, otherwise you are left out. I think we live in a culture where too oftentimes people believe the exclusiveness lies in the other direction. That unless you do this, or unless you are this, you're getting in. That's how that's how typically people operate. Right? We may not verbalize that, but even think about us when we're kind of lacking confidence to share the gospel with somebody. We'll even justify in our mind why somebody might be a believer even if we aren't sure. Right? Like maybe I don't have to have this conversation because, man, they're, re- they're, really, they're really a good person. Like they're, they're better than even some believers that I know. Right and, and and they do a lot of good stuff and and they give their money away and they do this and then a lot of times we will rationalize why we think somebody and they just have to be a Christian and we and we may not even verbalize that to another believer because we know well, good works don't get us in 
But I think a lot of times, sentimentally, we kind of think, surely that person will be okay in the end. Like, like when it's all said and done, they're not, they're not this, right? Like they're, they're not that bad. And I think we live in a culture that, that just assumes the best and ex- assumes that everybody's getting in unless you're kind of the worst of the worst. Um, some of us years ago, it's been several years now, several of us were kind of watching the Once Upon a Time TV series, right? Like I watched it a lot longer than everybody else. Everybody else kind of fell off. I stayed true to it for a long time up until like the last season, and then I was just like, I'm done, okay. Um, but <laughs> it, when it first came out, like one of the, the things that they would do um, is, is there were certain people in the show that had the ability to like pull people's hearts out and kind of look at the condition of the heart. And there were people that you wanted to like be good characters, like they were bad characters and you wanted them to be good characters and their heart would get pulled out and it would be like a black heart. And you're like, oh, there's no hope for that person. Like, like they're black. But everybody else's heart that got pulled out was like pure red. And, and, and you didn't want to see one of your good characters' heart start to turn black. And there were a couple of good characters that later on in the show at some point their heart would get pulled out by the evil queen or whatever, and their heart was starting to turn black. And you're like, oh no, like the good character is going bad, right? But in essence, like all of our hearts are black, right? Like all of us are evil. All of us are born into sin. There's not good characters and bad characters assuming that everybody starts off as a good character and then they, they move towards the bad character section. They all start off bad. We all start off bad. We're all born evil, right? So Gary and Annie's child, evil, from the, from the first day of birth, right? Like, we're going we're gonna to give birth in a few weeks. Our child's going to be evil, and, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to look cute, and it's going to look happy, and we're going to be so blessed to have this child be a part of our life. It's evil. It's born into sin, right? If we could pull the heart out, it would already be black before it ever makes any decisions to be sinful. It's black, right? But we live in a culture where we typically assume the best, that, that people are good until they become evil. And unless they become really evil, man, it, it may work out for them in the end. Maybe there are some other ways to kind of sneak in the back door. And Jesus says, hey, Nicodemus, you're like the best of the best. And, and unless you're born again, you're not getting in either. Like this isn't just for the Barabbases. This isn't just for the lady that's going to come to me down the road who, who's, who's going to be uh, in adultery and everybody wants to stone her right? This isn't the person who I'm going to talk to really soon, the, the, the Samaritan woman who has multiple men in her life. This isn't just for those people. Not just those people need to be born again. You need to be born again too. The truth is, is that nobody gets in unless they are born again. And this is unsettling, and it would have been unsettling to Nicodemus because it essentially tells us that we aren't good enough and that something has to be done to us Versus us doing something. You may have experienced this when you're, when you're trying to share the gospel with your kids. And most of the time our kids default into wanting to know, what do I need to do? Like, what's the, what, what, tell me what to do so I can just kind of knock this out. Like, like, what do I have to accomplish to get in? And, and, the, and the, the difficulty of the gospel is that you can't do anything. It has to be done to you. Right? It has to be a supernatural work done to you where there is a cleansing of the sin and there is a regeneration of the heart that enables you to believe in Jesus. And that's what's happening here. John is, John, or Jesus is, is really confronting Nicodemus and John is writing about it. 
But it's unsettling, I'm sure, for Nicodemus because he's being told all of your lifelong pursuits have not gotten you in yet, and they're not going to get you in. All right, so we need to understand the need for the rebirth, that it's applied to everybody. Nobody's outside of this exclusive way of getting in. Number two, understand the process of rebirth. Understand the process of rebirth. For our kids, the Holy Spirit uses the Bible to help change us. The Holy Spirit uses the Bible to help change us. Understand the process of rebirth. So Nicodemus is kind of confused here, right? He says, um, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Unless he's born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. There's been some, some commentators debate whether or not Nicodemus really completely misunderstood this and if he really thought Jesus was suggesting that a man had to go back into his mother's womb or was he simply trying to say, how can somebody as old as me kind of restart and reboot and have enough time to really get this figured out? I don't know that it matters either one. Um, what Jesus wants to communicate is that this is not a physical understanding of rebirth, that this is a supernatural thing that has to be understood, right? So number one here, it's not being born of flesh and blood that's being discussed here. It's not a physical type of approach to being reborn. And it does remind us that Nicodemus's Jewishness is not going to save him, right? That, that being a physical descendant of Abraham is not sufficient, that, that you have to be a spiritual seed of Abraham, right? So all of his lifelong efforts require a spiritual reboot. They have earned him nothing to this point. So it's not being born of flesh and blood. Instead, number two, it's being born of water and spirit. Being water and spirit. Now there's several different ways to interpret this. Some people interpret this as um, you have to be born of water, which means you have to be uh, born through a natural birth, meaning that you have to be human to actually be saved. That, that, that it doesn't work for angels, it doesn't work for um, animals. Like, you have to be born as a human uh, with the image and the picture being the water of the, um, the fluid that would, would precede the child coming out of the, the, the womb. Um, and then the spirit being kind of the spiritual birth, the second birth, the rebirth. Uh, the problem with that is that, that there's no evidence that in this time they, they would have understood physical birth in the terms of a water-type birth. Other people interpret this to mean that um, it's tied to uh, water baptism, that baptism is necessary for salvation, um, even potentially two different types of baptisms, a, a water baptism and a Holy Spirit-type baptism, okay? Um, problem with that is there's no mention of baptism the rest of this passage. As you continue to work through John 3, there's nothing, again, about baptism that you would expect to be there if it's a necessary component, right? Because he's going to continue to talk about what it looks like to be saved. And there's no other references or mentions of anything that you could tie to baptism, okay? Instead, I think what's going on here is that water and spirit are implying a couple of different things to us. One, water implies a need for cleansing and spirit emphasizes the supernatural work that is required. So the water piece emphasizing a need for cleansing Spirit emphasizing the supernatural work that is required. Ezekiel chapter 36 is an Old Testament passage. And I think it's important, too, to note 
Jesus rebukes Nicodemus for not understanding this already, which means it has to be contained in the Old Testament for him to have that type of expectation that a teacher of Israel should know these things already. So in Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25, this is talking about the new covenant. Um, it says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from the countries and bring you into our own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. In this passage, you have both those concepts there, the idea of water, the idea of spirit, and this idea of a transformational change taking place uh, in God's people, right? So when we think about people who we would call unregenerate, they are people who are impure and spiritually dead. Scripture would describe them as blinded and resistant to the things of God, meaning they need to be purified and they need to be raised to life, right? So I asked you today uh, in our discussion groups to to kind of define or describe what it means to be born again. And, and, and why is that important? Well, because Jesus says it's the only way to get in, right? So one, it means that we need to make sure that we have been born again, right? And two, it necessitates that we understand what it means so that we can then share it with others because it's the only way they are going to get in as well, right? So I did the same activity that I asked you to do. I didn't look up anything, I didn't uh, Google it. I didn't look in a theological textbook or anything like that. I just decided, okay, I'm just going to write down a definition from where I'm at right now in my life as to what, what it means to be born again or what regeneration looks like. Okay, so here's what I wrote down. It's the process whereby the Holy Spirit awakens us to spiritual things, enabling us to see our sin and need for confession while coupling it with new desires to follow Christ. Okay, so this is, a, this is a work of the Holy Spirit where we are spiritually dead in our sins and then he awakens us to spiritual things. He awakens us to our own spiritual deficits that, man, we are sinful in need of God's grace, in need of a Savior, right? But not only that, not only does he make us aware of what we need to fix as far as like we need to confess and, and we need to be forgiven of these things, but now we are empowered and, and given new desires to obey. Not just because we're mandated to from an external standpoint, like do this, do this, do this, because this is what we've told, been told to do. There's actually an inward desire to want to do these things, right? So I compared this with um, the definition that I used to teach And it's real similar. The work of the Holy Spirit to awaken spiritual life in us by convincing us of our sin, enlightening our minds to see our need for a Savior, and renewing our wills so that we are persuaded and enabled to embrace Jesus when he is freely offered to us in the gospel. Right, so being born again is where we are now transformed in such a way that we can respond to the gospel. That when, when God's word is given to us, we respond in faith because the Holy Spirit has enabled us to do such, right? The Holy Spirit has empowered us to believe. We can't even take credit really for the faith piece, right? So we've been born again when the Holy Spirit does this supernatural work in us. People who were dead, blinded, and resistant to the things of God. And this is why you can share the gospel with somebody for years and then, one day, 
it just changes for them, and all of a sudden they accept it, and you're like, why is that different? Like, like why is this different? I told you about the guy who, who I've talked to for years at McDonald's who was telling me about his coworker who he had shared the gospel with religiously for years. And then somebody else shares the gospel with the guy. The guy gets saved and connects with me. He's like, you're not going to believe what I've been told. And the guy's like, I've been telling you this for years. Like, why did it take somebody different? Like, what was different? Like, I've been telling you this same stuff for years, and you've rejected it. What's the difference? The Holy Spirit did the work that day, right? The Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit allowed that individual to see things that he had been blinded to for years. And, and why that day? I have no idea. And we probably will never know. And that's kind of the back part of this passage is that I mean, the wind blows where it will. And you can't control it. And you can't manufacture it. Right? And so it's this, it's this spiritual work that takes place in us. We're made alive by the Holy Spirit. We're made alive to the things of God. And this repentance that takes place in our hearts, it's, it's motivated by a conviction of the Holy Spirit. The word repentance, it, it comes from two words, the word after and thought, meaning that after you've thought, you make some changes. So it's a change of action based on a change of mind. And how does, how does the Holy Spirit do this? The Holy Spirit uses the word to bring about the spiritual change in us. And I want to read a couple of passages here, and then we'll be wrapping up here shortly. In Ephesians chapter 2, because this idea of being born again, this idea of regeneration is throughout the New Testament. Ephesians 2, 1, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. These aren't the bad characters in a fairy tale story. This is everybody in the story, right? Everybody's in this condition. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. Not when we were starting to see things on our own and starting to want Jesus on our own. When we were still dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Nicodemus is not a candidate to be born again because of his credentials, right? He doesn't come to Jesus and Jesus say, here's what it looks like to be ready to be born again, right? It's everybody who is born again is dead in their trespasses and sins when that takes place. They haven't progressed to a point where they're now a prime candidate for rebirth. They're reborn in the midst of their deadness. They're reborn in the midst of their deadness. In Ephesians chapter 5, Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. See, this is where the, the concept of water is not a physical water either, right? It's not physical baptism. The idea of being washed with the water, it's applied to the word here, right? So, Jesus is purifying his bride, purifying the church. How does he do that? Well, he washes her with water. What kind of water? Worldly water. 
like wordly water. Like the, the word of God is the water that he uses to wash our souls clean, right? So he's using God's word to radically transform us. So the Holy Spirit working with God's word is what brings about the change in us. Titus chapter three, verse three. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Okay? So again, that idea of of being reborn carries the idea of the washing and the carrying the idea of the Holy Spirit. James chapter 1 verse 18 is another passage. James 1 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Okay, so Holy Spirit and God's word working together to bring about this type of rebirth. This this being born again comes from a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit, taking God's word, acting like a seed in our heart, and it bringing forth that change. Okay, that's, what, that's where we would even see kind of that parable of the sower uh, connect here. Holy Spirit takes the seed of God's word, implants it in our heart, and allows it to now grow in a way that it never would have done otherwise. Okay? Um, without a spiritual washing of the soul, a cleansing accomplished by the Holy Spirit through the word of God, no one can enter God's kingdom. Which brings us to number three, understand the sovereignty of rebirth. Understand the sovereignty of rebirth. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. For our kids, when we get saved, others should see a difference in us. Others should see a difference in us. Number one, the process of rebirth cannot be controlled. Wind blows where it wants, and you can't do anything to manufacture this process on your own. You can't make it happen, and you can't stop it, right? Um, In spite of all of our technologies, we can't stop tornadoes, and we can't stop hurricanes. We can't stop the wind from blowing where it wants to. We can't even predict where it's going to go, right? Right? A couple of nights ago, not a couple of nights, a couple of weeks ago, all the alarms and sirens were going off in downtown Sonoy, right? So Lauren and I get up and, and we get on the um, news and, and we're under a tornado warning and they're trying to predict where the tornado is. They think it might be here. They think this might be the path and they're trying to figure it out. But despite all their technology, they really have no idea. And on top of that, it's dark outside and they can't even really see it, right? So they're trying to even figure out, is it out there? It's so dark, we can't even tell right? They can't predict where it's going. They can't stop it. They can't create it. They can't make it. And Jesus takes this analogy and says, that's exactly how the Holy Spirit works. He works like the wind. 
Um, he works in ways where you can't, even, you can't even see him necessarily doing the work, but you can certainly see the effects of it, right? And so that would be number two. The effects of rebirth are clearly seen. The effects of rebirth are clearly seen. So you can't control the process, but you can certainly see the effects. While you can't see the source, you can clearly identify the aftermath. Clearly see that it happened, right? Uh, this Back before we moved to Sonoy, so this would have been 2010. I think it was 2010, maybe uh, spring of 2011. It's when the, that crazy string of uh, tornadoes came through the south. And if you went down... 75 south down past uh down towards Macon in that area I mean it was just like obliterated in areas where you could just see like massive tornadoes that have come through even down 16 down where the farm is for for several years after that you could you could tell you weren't there that day right you may not have been anywhere near that area that day but years later you could still see I mean tornadoes came through here clearly there are trees that are just completely bent over and broken um, and it took years to get it cleaned up right you can always see the effects of the afterbirth or the rebirth the aftermath of the rebirth first john chapter 2 verse 29 remember this is the same author of what we're reading right now in the gospel of john first john chapter 2 verse 29 he tells us some of the things to look for as indicators of somebody who has been born again If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Right? 1 John 3, 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. First John chapter 5, verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. First John 5, 4. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. First John 5, 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who has been born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. There's clear effects that the new birth has. And we also live in a culture where people denounce expectations for that too. Like, I've been around way too many people that will try to justify somebody else's salvation despite there being no tangible effects to being born again. Yeah, but I know, I know, they, I know they made this declaration. I know they made this public profession. I know they, they, they said this prayer. Yeah, but there's not any effects of the, of the new birth that we can see in their life. I mean, they are, they are living in habitual sin with no desire to confess it, no evidence of struggling with it, no desire to fight it. Like, they're just accepting of it. Desire for righteousness over sin. Like, that's the effects of the new birth. And, and if, you, if you haven't been born again, then you don't have those effects, right? And so you could try to argue and say, hey, a, a tornado came through here and ripped through my area and tore everything up around me. And you're looking around and you're like, this happened yesterday? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, I don't see any signs of this, right? Like, like there's nothing. Yeah, but, but it did. Or I was at least told that it did by the news reporter. Well, I don't think it did. I, I think it missed your area. I don't see any signs of a tornado here, right? And so 
John's very clear. He talks about the rebirth here in John chapter 3. He's talking about the effects of the rebirth in 1 John. And there ought to be clear signs that this has taken place, clear signs that the wind is actually blown in this direction. Too often people assume, based on professing believers who don't look different from the world, that being born again doesn't change someone, but the New Testament works the opposite. Born-again people aren't filled with worldliness. The church is just full of people who aren't born again. All right? From an application standpoint, three things. One, we should definitely walk away from this passage taking some time to rejoice over our own personal salvation because we didn't manufacture it. Completely the work of the Holy Spirit. It's completely the Holy Spirit's work that you would prefer to be here gathering with other believers than doing something else. I got up early this morning, went to finish studying and preparing, and I'm sitting at the red light, and it won't turn green, just won't turn green, so I'm just sitting there, and truck after truck with boat after boat behind it, flying down 16. You know, I'm just like, those guys are going to the lake today, right? Like, it's another, it's another day of the weekend. This is what I do with my weekend. Right? And that's not to say, obviously, that you can't ever have a Sunday where you hitch up the boat and you go to the lake. Right? But it just, it just made me contemplate and think for a second that there's a lot of people, there are a lot of people that aren't motivated to do anything like what we're doing today. That's a supernatural work that changes us to where we say, you know what? I want to give up my time, time that I believe is mine, to gather with other believers for the sake of anticipating and waiting for the return of our King. Take some time to rejoice over your own personal salvation. Number two, be faithful to communicate the gospel to those who claim Christ but don't reflect genuine belief. There was a whole lot of other people that needed the gospel at Jesus' time. And he could have easily said, you know what, Nicodemus, you're probably good, right? Like, there's a lot of other people over here that are sleeping with people and, and doing evil things. And, and they need to be talked to first because they definitely need to be born again. Still not sure about you. Like, you might be good. He looks right at Nicodemus and says, you got to be born again too. Because the effects of the Holy Spirit have not blown into your life yet. So we ought to be sensitive enough to be aware. Quit justifying people's salvation in your mind. Give them gospel. Give them the gospel if they claim Christ but don't reflect genuine belief. Number three, keep praying for those who need salvation because it will require a supernatural act. We don't need to grow discouraged over the fact that somebody hadn't got saved yet and think that it's on you because you've done a poor job of of presenting it. You can present it for years the exact same way and then somebody else come in behind you and do a crummy job of it and then get saved. It's just just how the the wind works. It blows where it wants to, it blows when it wants to, and it accomplishes what it wants to. We're we're responsible for, for planting the seeds and waiting for the Holy Spirit to seize the seed and stick it in the heart in the way that we want it to be there, the way that we desire it for it to be there, the way that we can't do ourselves. And I wish we could pull people's hearts out and take the gospel and stick it in and then stick it right back in their chest. I wish we could do that. It's completely a work of the Holy Spirit. So we pray for that to happen. We pray for that to happen. All right? Family worship questions. Discuss ways that your life has looked different since you were born again. Talk about some of the effects of what it looked like for the wind to blow into your life, the Holy Spirit to work in your life. And then number two, as we start to move forward in this chapter, review the story of Moses and the bronze serpent in anticipation of next week because Jesus uses that Old Testament story to help us better understand what he came to do for us, okay? One last thing that I would share before we pray. 
the book Finally Alive by John Piper. I don't recommend a whole lot of books because I feel like most of the time when I get behind a book, the author does something silly and I have to take it off my bookshelf. Um, so I got even recently I've got to take some books that I don't want to use anymore because of mistakes made by the authors that are just kind of render them uh, not useful anymore for me. But I feel like John Piper, he'd been around long enough. He's old enough now where he's probably on the back end of his life. He, he's He's not free from the ability to make mistakes, but I feel like I can recommend him confidently and not have to backtrack on it. But his book, Finally Alive, is all about being born again. It's a great resource, really delves into more detail than what we've gone into today about why we need to be born again, what the process looks like, and then what the effects are of being born again. So I would certainly recommend, if you're still kind of fuzzy and hazy on this process, if we're, if we're using words that you're not familiar with, um, that it may be worth picking up and reading. It's not a big book, um, but certainly a very helpful book that I read years ago, and it really helped shape my understanding of regeneration and being born again. All right, let's pray together. And before we pray, I want to just pause for a second and um, not take for granted the fact that everybody in here is a believer um, and really challenge anybody that may feel a sense of conviction or a lack of assurance that you don't take that for granted because that may be something supernatural. That if, if being born again, if being saved only happens by the Holy Spirit doing something when you are dead in your trespasses and sins, don't take that, don't take that for granted. That, that the Holy Spirit may be doing something in your heart today and you need to act on that. Um, you need to take a step of faith in that direction and talk to somebody. I'd love to talk with you afterwards. We've got other people that would love to talk with you afterwards as well. Um, let's not take that for granted today, that if you're under any type of conviction and, and want to talk, don't be embarrassed by that. You know, like we, like we've said before, we're praying that people get saved as a result of our study of the Gospel of John. So don't take that for granted today. Rejoice over the fact that the Holy Spirit is working in your heart in a way that maybe he hasn't previously. Because let's not assume that we couldn't be full of uh, a church full of Nicodemuses who on the outside look very much like what a believer should look like. You know, a, a rule follower, uh, a person who, who looks very much like what we would describe as a perfect Christian who's never really had inward change. God, we come to you this morning and, and we praise you and thank you for our salvation. We thank you that many of us in this room have been born again, that there was a day in our life where we were dead in our trespasses and sins and you awakened us so that we could pass from death to life, so we could pass from darkness to light. And God, we rejoice today knowing that, that that's not anything that we did on our own, that we didn't earn the right to be saved, that we didn't certainly save ourselves by our accomplishments. God, we're thankful that salvation works the same for everybody, that from man's perspective, the worst sinner and the best sinner, both of them only get in by being born again. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who brings about the necessary change in our hearts to even desire Christ, to desire the gospel. Father, we pray for our loved ones and our friends who are, are a burden on us, people that we desire to be saved who have rejected the gospel for years. Father, I pray that we would not lose hope or faith in your ability to bring about change. God, help us to demonstrate our faith and trust and expectation in you through our prayers. God, help us not to just resolve to think that, that somebody's lost and, and they're never going to get saved. God, help us to realize that the wind can blow wherever you desire for it to blow. And help us to keep praying that it will blow in the ways that we've identified 
in our lives where people are not saved and they need you. God, I pray for anybody in our church that's not a believer who, who needs that supernatural work today, that you would send the Holy Spirit to bring about conviction in such a way where their hearts would be changed. They would see their, their need to confess their sins, that you would fill their heart with new desires for Christ. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.